Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, well, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Rees listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads, where in every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and... I hope you will, too. I've wanted to share a story by today's author for a few years now, and I'm very excited to finally do it. Danielle Alarcon is a really brilliant writer, journalist, and professor based in New York City. Now, you might know him as the host of Radio Ambulante. He's a Peruvian-American. He was born in Lima, but grew up outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Fascinating juxtaposition of places. Reading his stories, I often feel like a fly on the wall, or maybe the guy down at the end of the bar observing something unfold out of the corner of of my eye. Danielle's work can be very intimate and explore some dark places, and as a listener advisory, this story does contain an incident of physical child abuse. Now, Daniel's voice as a writer I think, is informed by his work as a journalist. He has said that when he's finished writing a long-form piece, he'll often still have lots of anecdotes or characters that lie on the cutting room floor. Maybe he knows they are tangential or they're storylines he knew but couldn't prove to be true through reporting, so he often takes those bits of information and people and fictionalizes them to explore them a bit more. This story is called Republica and Grau, and it follows a young boy who works in tandem with a blind beggar. It appears in Danielle's collection, The King is Always Above the People, published by Riverhead Books. There is a distinct performance aspect to panhandling, and the boy in this story is conscripted to play a certain role in this performance. So... If you're ready, let's take a deep breath. (sighs) And begin. Republica and Grau by Danielle Alarcon.
The blind man lived in a single room above a bodega on a street not so far from Michael's house. It was up a slight hill, as was everything in the neighborhood. There was nothing on the walls of the blind man's room, nor was there anywhere to sit, and so Michael stood. He was ten years old. There was a single bed, a nightstand with a radio wrapped in duct tape, a wash basin. The blind man had graying hair and was much older than Michael's father. The boy looked at his feet and kicked together a small mound of dust on the concrete floor while his father and the blind man spoke. The boy didn't listen, but then no one expected him to. He was not surprised when a tiny black spider emerged from the insignificant pile he had made. It skittered across the floor and disappeared beneath the bed. Michael raised his eyes. A cobweb glittered in an upper corner. It was the room's only decoration. His father reached out and shook the blind man's hand. So, it's agreed, Michael's father said. And the blind man nodded, and this was all. A week later, Maiko and the blind man were in the city at the noisy intersection of Republica and Grau. They had risen early on a winter morning of low, leaden skies and made their way to the center, to this place of snarling, bleating traffic in the shadow of a great hotel. The blind man carried a red-tipped cane and he knew the route well, but once they arrived, he folded the cane and left it in the grassy median. His steps became tentative, and Michael understood that the pretending had begun. The blind man's smile disappeared, and his jaw went slack. Everything there was to know Michael learned in that first hour. The lights were timed. There were three minutes of work, followed by three minutes of waiting. When the traffic stopped, the blind man put one hand on the boy's shoulder and, with the other, held out his ten, and together they walked up the row of idling cars. Michael led him toward the cars with windows rolled down, and the blind man muttered helplessly as he approached each one. Michael's only job was to steer him toward those who were likely to give, and make sure that he did not waste time on those who would not. Women driving alone were, according to the blind man, preemptively generous, hoping in this way to avoid being robbed. They kept small coins in their ashtrays for just such transactions. Taxi drivers could be counted on as well because they were working people and men with women always wanted to impress and might let slip a few coins to show their sensitive side. Men driving alone rarely gave and not a moment should be squandered beside a car with tinted windows. 
If they know you can't see them, the blind man said, they don't feel shame. But they all know you can't see them, Michael said. And that's why you're here. Michael's mother hadn't wanted him to work in the city had said so the night before, but his father had bellowed and slammed a fist on the table. Of course, these gestures were hardly necessary. In truth, Michael didn't mind the work. He even liked the pace, especially those moments when there was nothing to do but watch the endless traffic soak in its dull roar. Grau is the road people take to connect to the northern districts the blind man explained. He had the city mapped clearly in his mind. There was money to be made in the north. It was a region of people trying to better themselves, not like the southern rich who had forgotten where they'd come from. It's a generous intersection, this one, the blind man had said. These people recognize me and love me because they have known me their entire lives. They give. Maiko listened as well as he could above the din. Me, me, me. That was what he heard. The cars and the engines and the blind man. It was all one sound. Acrid fumes hung over the intersection, so toxic that after only an hour, Michael could feel a bubble in his chest and then in his throat, something tickling. He coughed and spat. He apologized as his mother had taught him. The blind man laughed. You'll do much worse here, boy. You'll cough and piss and shit and it will all be the same. The clouds thinned out by noon, but that morning was cool and damp. The blind man kept all the money, periodically announcing how much they'd collected. It wasn't much. Each time a coin was dropped into the tin, the blind man bowed humbly, and though he hadn't been asked to, Maiko did the same. The blind man emptied the tin into his pocket, and when the light changed, he warned Maiko to watch out for thieves. But the boy only saw men hawking newspapers and chalkboards, women with baskets of bread or flowers or fruit, and the very density of people in the area made it seem safe. Everyone had been kind to him so far. A woman his mother's age gave him a piece of bread with sweet potato, because it was his first day. She tended to a few toddlers on the median. They were playing with a stuffed animal, taking turns tearing it to pieces. The stuffing spread across the grass in white clumps, and when a truck rolled by, these were blown into the street. When the blind man found out that Michael had gone to school, he bought a newspaper and had the boy read it to him. He nodded or clucked his tongue while Maiko read, and the stories were so absorbing that they even missed a few lights so that he could finish them. A judge had been murdered 
the previous day in broad daylight at a restaurant not far from where they sat. An editorial defended the life of a guard dog the authorities wanted to put down for having killed a thief. There would be a new president soon, and protests were planned to welcome her. Music leaked from the windows of passing cars, and Maiko could hear voices at each light singing along to a dozen different melodies. When he could, he studied the blind man's face, unshaven and olive-skinned with puffy cheeks. His nose was crooked and squat. He didn't wear dark glasses as some of the blind did, and Maiko guessed that the sullen sheen of the man's useless gray eyes was part of his value as a beggar. It was a competitive area. After all, and there were others working that morning whose qualifications for the position were clearly beyond question. Maiko's father was waiting at the door of the blind man's room when they got back that afternoon. He winked at Maiko and then greeted the blind man gruffly, surprising him. The money, he said, with no warmth in his voice. Let's see it. The blind man pulled out his key and patted the door for the lock. Not here. Inside is better. You people with eyes are always so impatient. Michael stood by while they divided the take. The counting went slowly. The blind man felt each coin carefully, then announced its worth out loud. When no one contradicted him, he continued, his hands moving with elegant assurance, organizing the money into piles on the bed. A few times he misidentified a coin, but Michael felt certain that this was by design. The third time it happened, Michael's father sighed. I'll count, he said. But the blind man would have none of it. That wouldn't be fair now, would it? When the counting was done, Maiko and his father walked home in silence. It had taken longer than they'd expected, and Maiko's father was in a hurry. He carried their cut in his pocket. When his mother asked how it had gone, his father sneered and said there was no money, or none worth mentioning. He prepared for his night shift while the boy and his mother ate dinner. The second day, it was the same. But on the third, when they walked down the hill after his day with the blind man, Michael's father took the boy to the market and bought sodas for them both. An old gentleman with thick, calloused hands served them. Maiko drank his soda through a straw. His father asked him how the work was, whether he liked it. By now, Maiko was old enough to know that he should not say too much. He'd learned this from his mother. Did he like downtown? He did. And was he enjoying the work? He was. What was it like? Here, Maiko chose his words carefully, 
explaining what he had absorbed in those few days about charity, about traffic, about the relative generosity of cars headed north versus those headed south. Michael's father listened calmly. He finished his soda, ordered a beer, then thought better of it. He looked at his watch, then scattered a few coins on the counter, and the old man swept them into his palm with a frown. We're being robbed, Michael's father said. Do you hear me, boy? You've got to keep track of the money. You've got to add it up in your head. Michael was quiet. Are you listening to me? The blind man gets half, we get half. The blind man had bought Michael a bag of popcorn that morning. After Michael had read him the paper, he had told him stories about how the city had been when the air was still sweet, when there was no traffic. The place he described seemed fantastical. Even the intersection where we work was quiet once, the blind man had said, smiling because he knew this would be hard to believe. Now the boy looked up at his father. You can't let a blind man hustle you, son, his father said. It's an embarrassment. Michael did his best to keep an accurate count the next day, but by lunchtime, the exhaust made him swoon. When he asked how much there was, the blind man said that he couldn't know for sure. I'll count it later, he said. Count it now, Michael said. The words came out with a certain snap that the boy liked. But the blind man just smiled. Cute, he said. Now, read the next story. A horn blew, and then another, and soon there was a chorus. When the street was quiet enough, Michael opened the paper again. An entire village in the mountains had been poisoned during a festival. Bad meat. The minister of health was airlifting in medicine and doctors. Then the light changed, and it was time to work. Every afternoon, Michael's father was there to meet them at the door of the blind man's room. The money was never enough, and his father could not, or would not, hide his displeasure. Michael could sense it, knew with such certainty it was coming that when, on the eighth day, his father knocked the radio off the nightstand and said, You stealing blind fuck! He felt that he had willed it to happen. His father, angry, was a sight to behold. That great red face, eyes open to the whites, fists like mallets. Michael wondered if the blind man could truly appreciate the spectacle. Was his father's voice, the sharp edge of it, enough? If nothing else, the blind man understood the seriousness of the moment. He seemed neither surprised nor afraid when his pockets were emptied. The radio sputtered and died. Until it stopped, Michael hadn't even noticed that it was on. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Now, let's get back to our story. They were back at work a few days later with a new agreement. The boy would hold the money now. The coins weighed heavily in his pocket so that the money felt like a lot more than it was. Just small, old, thin coins. Worthless, worn-down coins. And when the work was done that day, the blind man asked the boy to point him toward the hotel. It was sunny, and in the slanting afternoon light, the hotel's glowing glass exterior seemed to be made of gold. Now let's walk to it, the blind man said. He knew the way. And he had collected his cane, but here in front of their regular clientele, it was understood that the boy should continue to lead him. They crossed Grau together, the blind man's hand on Maiko's shoulder. On the far side of the hotel is a street. Read me the sign, the blind man said. It was a narrow street. Palomares, Maiko said. Let's walk down this one, boy, away from Grau. When they had crossed the second intersection, the blind man asked what was on each corner. Maiko went clockwise. A bakery, a man selling roasted corn from a cart, an internet cafe, a butcher shop. The blind man smiled. Behind the cart, what is there? A bar. 
This bar. What's it called? El Moises. Let's go in. It was quiet in the bar, and the blind man asked Michael to choose the best table. The boy picked one by a window. El Moises was just below street level, and the windows allowed a view of people's legs as they passed. The smell of roasted corn on the cob filled the bar, and they hadn't been there long before the blind man gave in and asked for two. He'd already finished his first beer by then. He gave one ear of corn to Maiko and washed the other down with a second cold glass of beer. He spoke wistfully of the fights that had exploded before him in this very same space, of chairs thrown, of bottles broken and brandished as weapons, of the beautiful noise of conflict. You could hear it in the breathing of those around you. Panic, fear, adrenaline. There were a dozen names for that extraordinary sensation. What do you do when it happens? Michael asked. Well, you fight, of course. But what do you do? Ah, that's what you mean. How does a blind man fight? I'll tell you. He spoke nearly in a whisper. Recklessly with whatever implement is at hand, swinging wildly and searching desperately for an exit. The blind man sighed. I suppose it's not so different for those who can see. More desperate, perhaps. Or more reckless. The waiter had turned on a radio, a low-humming melody that Michael could not quite make out. They were the only people in the bar. Tell me, what do you look like? I should have asked sooner. Describe yourself, the blind man said. No one had ever asked Maiko such a thing. In fact, it wouldn't have occurred to him that a question like that could even be asked. Describe himself. He thought for a moment, but nothing came to mind. I'm a boy, he managed. I'm ten years old. More than that, the blind man said. He took a swig from his beer. I, I need more than that. Michael squirmed in his chair. What does your face look like? I know you're small for your age. How are you dressed? Uh, normal, was all the boy could say. I'm dressed normal. I look normal. Your clothes, for example. Your shirt. What material is it? I don't know. Can I touch it? The blind man said. Without waiting for an answer, he had already reached out and was testing the fabric of Maiko's shirt between his thumb and forefinger. Is the color very faded? No, Maiko said. Are there holes in the knees of your pants? They're patched. And are the pants hemmed? Yes. The blind man grunted. Mm. Your shirt is tucked in? Michael looked down. It was. And you're wearing a belt, I assume. It's leather? Yes. The blind man sighed. 
He called for another beer, and when the glass was placed on the table, he asked the waiter to stay for a moment. Sir, excuse me, he said, raising his right hand. He told Maiko to stand, and then he addressed the waiter again. How would you describe the general appearance of this child? The waiter was a serious, unsmiling man. He looked Maiko over from head to toe. He is dressed neatly. He looks clean. His hair, is it combed? Quite. The blind man thanked him and told Maiko to sit down. He drank his beer, and for a moment Maiko thought that he wouldn't speak again. On the radio, a new song started up. A voice accompanied by a bright, ringing guitar, and the blind man smiled and tapped his fingers against the table. He sang along, hummed for a moment when he didn't know the words, and then fell silent altogether. Your old man thinks he's a tough guy he finally said, after the song had finished and the waiter had brought him another beer. Here's the problem. He goes off to work every night and he doesn't see you in the morning and meanwhile your mother dresses you. She must be a nice woman, very correct, but you're a mama's boy. Pardon me, son, but I must speak plainly. That's why we don't make money. You can't beg looking like this. Michael was silent. The blind man laughed. (laughs) Are you taking this hard? No, Michael said. Good. Very well. The blind man nodded and whistled for the waiter who appeared at the table and announced what was owed. Thank you, sir, the blind man said, smiling in every direction. A receipt, please. The boy. We'll be paying. That night, Michael's father went into a rage. Where's the money? Where's the money, you lazy little shit? And what could he say except this? I spent it. The sentence escaping on its own and his fear arriving as soon as those three words and the half-truth they expressed were audible. Fear spread outward from his chest so that his arms felt light and useless, his stomach watery, and then his legs would not hold him up any longer. His mother, when she tried to intervene, was beaten as well, and there was a moment in that short, furious episode, an instant, when Michael felt certain that he would not survive. His mother's screams told him that this was not like the other times, although if he had dared to open his eyes, he would have known it for himself from the savage look on his father's face. Then there was noise, and there was light, and heat, as if from a great exhaling fire. Michael peeked, and the room itself seemed to move. He was pushed, and he stood, and he was shoved, and he surprised himself by standing again, and this continued until he no longer could.
All was quiet. Michael didn't know how much time had passed, only that his father had gone. He opened his eyes. The glass door of the cabinet had been shattered. A chair leg snapped. There had been a storm, and now it had passed. Inexplicably, there was no blood. His mother leaned against the far wall, not sobbing, just breathing, and Michael crawled to her. And then he slept. Michael didn't dream that night. The few hours of sleep he managed were blank and dark. He woke at dawn in his bed. His mother must have moved him. The blind man arrived the next morning as if nothing had happened. Michael saw him and realized that he'd expected the man to be dead. He'd imagined that the fury his father had unleashed on him would be doubled or tripled for the blind man. Instead, the blind man wore the same contented look he'd had the afternoon before when he left the boy at the bus stop, saying that he would make his own way home. There had been a softness to his words. He wasn't drunk, Michael knew, but happy, as happy as Michael was humiliated as happy as Michael was angry. Go, his mother said. Go, we need the money. And so Michael swallowed and stretched his sore, wounded body. He stared angrily at the blind man, and then, with his mother sighing softly, he went. Michael knew the way by then, knew it well, knew the names of the streets they passed on their descent to the center, the turns they took, the intersections where the road was rutted and the bus shook. All the sights along the way, the determined faces of the men and women who got off and on, and the collective breath the bus took as they crossed the bridge just before the old center. In the rainy season, the thin, dirty stream beneath them would come to life, or a kind of life. But for now it was just an anemic trickle that would not make it to the sea. Boys his age ran along the riverbed. Michael could see them from the bus, tending to their oily fires. If he'd been asked, he could have described it all for the blind man, this city of dirt and smoke. But Michael supposed that the blind man knew this place better than he ever would. He didn't read the paper that day, didn't listen to the blind man's stories as the avenue filled and emptied according to its own somber rhythms. He waited for the blind man to apologize, though he knew that he wouldn't. He didn't bother to count the money before it disappeared into his pocket, and it was only when the skies began to clear, when the sun poured through a gaping hole in the clouds, that he realized that there had never been so much. Michael touched his face, his sore jaw, his bruised cheek, his right eye, not swollen shut, but pinched so that he had to strain to keep it open. The blind man couldn't know. Describe yourself. What do you look like? 
beggar. He was surrounded by them. He could see them now, this itinerant army of supplicants waiting for a stroke of good luck, for some generous act to redeem the day or the week or the month. Counting hour after hour the careful arithmetic of survival. This much for food. This much if I walk home. This much for the children, for the house, for the soup, for the drink, for the roof over my head. This much to keep the cold at bay. Maiko's father spent his waking hours in another part of the city, engaged in much the same calculus. And if he had succeeded at anything, it was in shielding the boy from this. We're doing well today, no? The blind man said. He didn't wait for an answer, just smiled and hummed a tune. Then the light changed and the boy gathered himself and led the blind man again through the idling rows of traffic. The air was sweet with exhaust. A man driving alone dropped money into the tin. Michael stopped short. He turned to the blind man, faced him. What are you doing? The blind man asked. It wasn't a question that Michael could have answered, even if he'd tried. There was no question of trying. Michael reached into his pocket, pulled out the money they'd earned that morning, the money they'd been given, and dropped a handful into the blind man's tent, where it rattled wonderfully, heavily, falling with such abrupt weight that the blind man nearly let go. He said, What's wrong with you, boy? But Michael was not listening, could hear nothing but the sound of the revving motors, and he watched in the glare for the light to change. Another handful of coins, little ten-cent pieces, the bigger silver coins that really meant something. All of it, Maiko dropped into the tin. He read the confusion on the blind man's face. The money was all gone now. He had none of it, and he began to step back and away from the blind man. Where are you going? Where are you? The blind man said, not pleading, but not unconcerned. Maiko steeled himself, and with a swift slap, he upended the blind man's ten, knocking it and the coins from the beggar's hands and into the street. Some rolled under the idling cars, others nestled into the cracks in the pavement, and a few caught a glint of sun and shone and shone, but only for the boy. A moment later, the light had changed, and the traffic had resumed its northward progress. But even if it had not, even if every car in the city had waited patiently for the blind man to drop to his knees and pick up each of the coins, Michael would have seen something that made it all worthwhile. It was what the boy would remember, what he would replay in his mind as he walked away across the bridge 
and up the long hill toward home. The blind man, suddenly helpless. For a moment, he was not pretending. When I read this story, I am, I am struck by the, the heroic nature of the boy in the story. And every time I read it, in the end, he becomes stronger and stronger in my mind. You know, I think the first time I read it, he was sort of tentatively, I mean, this is the image that I had in my head, that he was sort of tentatively swiping at the, at the cup, you know, sort of unsure as to, you know, really what or why he was doing what he was doing. Um, after reading it a few times, and, and, and certainly this time through, by this reading, he was standing his ground, growing in stature, really making a decision and that decision was born from me as much out of the pain of the reality of the cruelty of the world and informed by the lesson that his father had taught him, which was, um, you know, what, what true sorrow looked like when he showed up to work on that last day. And so I wonder... So what's Michael's next move? What does he do tomorrow to make his living, to buy his bread? Does he, does he go home tonight penniless and, and risk his father's wrath in order to get beaten again so that he goes and finds another corner that he stakes out and becomes like this very successful beggar uh, it's i mean it's it's a powerful story uh for me when i imagine the realness of michael's situation and uh and and when i try and think about what happens next for this kid one can certainly imagine you know his life taking several different tracks. Um, but it all begins in that moment of empowerment, and that moment of empowerment does not happen for him without the tragedy of the beating. Sometimes life just throws you a curve that you didn't see coming. And whether you duck out of the way or get hit by the bull, you still got to live in the next moment. And that's why Michael's a, a real hero to me, because I imagine him taking agency over his life from that moment forward. And in that way, it's, it's a hopeful ending for me. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is indeed the best in the business, y'all, Julia Marie Smith. We had help from Kristen Torres, our editing and sound design by Misha Stanton, and Brendan Burns provided his engineering expertise for today's episode. I want to thank Daniel Alarcon and his publisher, Riverhead Books, for allowing me to read his story. You can find it in his collection entitled The King is Always Above the People. 
If you enjoyed listening to Republica and Grau by Danielle Alarcon, please look for the full collection as an audiobook narrated by David DeSantos, available from Penguin Audio. Now, do you like the podcast? Okay, I thought so. But if you want to help other people find it, it's easy to do. Simply leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And in that review, why not tell me about a story you'd like to hear me read? We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. Or if you can't wait that long, you can indulge in the next episode. Yes, you can. And exclusive bonus author interviews to boot on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up on Stitcher one week early and ad-free. So go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar. Or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon, Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters, and yours truly, LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.